Wow, it's an honor to be part of such an offering today. Good morning. John would just want me to pass on to you guys that um, the Steffens have so appreciated all the love and support that has been coming their way. And today, they're just thirsty for a season of sort of solitude as a family. So send the love and the prayers, and we'll just give them a little bit of space for today. But thank you so much. Um, And it's an honor to be here. I need to tell you that in the last year and a half, I have become the apprentice to, the disciple of, the the student. I have a new master and maestro. Um, You may call him friend. Um, I call him Woody Totten. And uh, Woody Totten has been teaching my daughters and me guitar for the last year and a half. And I'm not going to play yet, uh, almost, not quite. But um, Woody is a saint because he's been putting up with our practice or lack thereof and um, our fr- failure to bring our books or get there on time or whatever. But, see, I don't even have a guitar strap, so I don't know how to use it very well. But there's another great like guitarist, and he has something to say about when you're first learning guitar. David Wilcox, a folk artist from uh, North Carolina, Asheville, North Carolina, he once observed that when you first start playing the guitar, as we've been doing, you put your left hand on the fretboard and you put your right hand down here by this big old hole. And it seems at first as if you're doing two separate things. But then he says as you, as you play, you come to sense that left hand, right hand, right hand, left hand, they're really just one thing. And, and my friend David Wilcox says that when you begin to sing that tune along with what your hands are doing. You see your hands playing and, and you hear your, your voice, you're, you're conscious that on the other hand your voice is singing and it seems clear to you at first that they're doing two dichotomous, separate, diverse, divided things until you realize that the chords coming through this hollow box in your hands and the chords inside the skin between your shoulders and your brain are both chords And they're both doing one thing, singing one song. And he goes on to say that when you get the courage to stand in front of an audience and play and sing, at first it feels like you up there alone before this room full of watching eyes, listening ears, waiting hearts. You stand there, you and them. Two separate things, performer, audience, preacher, congregation, until the truth surfaces and it bubbles up from the depth of a more real reality and you know somehow that the song is shared that it's one thing and there's no more troubadour or listener no performer or patron but just one thing a song that we share because whatever else we are we are one so a dream i have for our time together this morning is that we would finish in a different place than where we start. Because all things being equal, we have probably rolled into church this morning the way we roll into life often. You know, we come with this misguided monotony of our separate, self-conscious, self-protecting, autonomous, disconnected selves. And my prayer and my dream is that we would move into a place, a new place, where we see that whatever else we are, we're one. 
And we've been one since this whole story got started. I mean, if you read the poem that begins this book that we hold so dear, the writer struggles from the get-go with number. I mean, the legacy of this book is that there's one God. And yet in the very first chapter of this book, we seem to struggle with how many gods there are because God says, let us make mankind in our image. Like we've got plural going on. But then real quick, it switches back, and it says, so he made mankind in his image, in the image of God, he created him. So it sounds like one God made one man, but now it splits on us. Male and female, he created them. Is it one God, is it two? Is it one humanity, is it more than one? So God sounds like singular. Is God singular or is God a community? And as for creation, the text starts with man, mankind, and it moves into he and she. One God yet one God who talks to God's self, saying, let us make one mankind, and yet a mankind made in this singularly plural God's image as male and female, both from the mouth of God. And then in the next poem, both from the dust of the ground. In the second creation story, the woe man shows up to revolutionize, contextualize, brings sweet surprise to the life of Adam, who calls her literally, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, made from a rib, right there next to Adam's heart. Because even from our earliest stories, humankind has wondered, has awed, at a God whose diversity is trumped by God's oneness. It's odd that we are people who seem as different as male and female, his and hers, he said, she said, Mars and Venus, in right, outright, upright, downright, yet we find our lightest light, our truest true love when we recognize that whatever else we may be, we are one. We're one body, one body inside which the Holy Spirit dwells and Jesus is head. We're one humanity, bone of each other's bone, flesh of flesh. In this body, in this body, in this body, Paul, post-persecutor Paul said, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, member nor visitor, neither slave, well, I said that one, (laughs) neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28. Can we receive that where we are right now? How far do we dare to go with the implications of what Paul says there? Could we, could we say there's no Republican, no Democrat? Could we say there's no conservative, no liberal, no rich, no poor, no prosecutor, no defender, no victim, no perp, no alien, no citizen, no Bernie, no Hillary, no Ben, no Donald? How far can we go with what... Paul is trying to get started here because that same previously paranoid Paul said there is one body and one spirit just as we all were called to one hope when we were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. See, this saw Paul, he saw in this one body and this one spirit of Christ, he saw the spirit Because he'd heard that spirit speak, that one anointed Christ speak on the day that Paul lost his sight. And he heard Christ asking, Saul, Saul, 
Why do you persecute me? Why do you separate those that I died to include? Why is your life bringing death to delude my one body into killing itself? Hand over fist, head over heels, foot into mouth. That same Paul heard that same Christ whose audacious heart bled for what he called sheep that are not of this sheep pen. That same Christ who said, I must bring them also. They too will hear my voice and there will be one flock, there will be one shepherd. John 10, 16. Paul, pompous pontificator of the past, caught the Christ dream when he saw one body with many members whose members do not all have the same function. And when he saw that in Christ, though many, we form one body and each member belongs to all the others. We belong to Dorian. Dorian belongs to us. Reaching beyond his prior perfectionism, Paul felt the Christ wind and he sensed that just as one body Though one has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the same one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, in the body, every one of them, every one of you, just as God wanted them to be. For if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. So the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts on the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Do you seem, do you feel weaker? You're indispensable. The parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. Do you think you're less honorable? Can you hear God saying that he honors you? We honor you. You're part of us. The parts that are unpresentable, do you fear that you can't be presented here in church today? Like, if we knew you, we'd run you out of here? Well, guess what? You're here, and you're one of us. You're with us. We treat those parts with special modesty, and while our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Because if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. <laughs> Paul, Paul smelled this. He, he tasted it. He sculpted it into what we know as Scripture. That whatever else we may be, we're one. So, so what? So what? Guitar, hands, voice, singer, crowd, one. So what? Head, shoulders, knees, toes, and places where the sun never goes, one. So what? 
It's a question you might be asking as the question that's a good question. Whatever else we may be, he says, we're one. So what? So what? Well, here's what. Let's start with this. This lovely little thing. Oh, there's a little bit of green stuff in there. That's nice. I'm owned by one somebody who owns me and owns this. You're owned by that same somebody who owns you and your version of this. So that when I lose money, and I'm good at that, or I give money, I don't so much pay a bill or lose as much as transfer money between our joint accounts. We're one, amigos. So, so what? We're one. Well, here's what. So maybe I don't have to worry quite so much about being right and showing you or my wife or my children or my opponents in bait or my students or the people out there how wrong they are. Maybe there's a ring of truth to this Sufi poet's invitation. Rumi once wrote, out beyond the ideas of wrongdoing or rightdoing, there's a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about ideas and language. Even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. You're wrong. I'm right. Doesn't make any sense inside of our oneness. Even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense, fellow members of the Messiah's body, because whatever else we may be, we're one. So what? So our destinies are connected, because if we're one, how I sow in you is what I reap. What I give from me to you is what I reap. We're caught up together. Your freedom is my freedom. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., whose birthday we celebrated this last Monday, he saw this, and he also saw beyond the color of the people who were there gathered at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial. He saw it, and I'd like you to hear the way he expressed it in his own, from his own voice. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protests to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. The marvelous new militancy which has engulfed the Negro community must not lead us to a distrust of all white people. For many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny. And they have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone. We cannot walk alone because our destinies are caught up with each other, because we're one. Your freedom is my freedom. Your freedom is bound to my freedom. So, if I want something, I need to sow it in you. If I want freedom, I'm going to sow freedom. If I want forgiveness, I get to sow forgiveness. If I want respect, I get to sow some respect. If I want justice, sow justice. If I want to have love, I sow love. 
whether they deserve it or not. Because whatever else we may be, we are one. We're one. So what? So this. So when I look at you, what I see is largely a reflection of myself. Because my eyes are doing the beauty and the, and the problems are in the eye of the beholder because we're one. So I'm really good at seeing that speck in your eye, especially when it looks a lot like the beam that's in my own. Because I'm really familiar. That thing, I got a lot of FaceTime with that. I've seen it. And I don't really like to talk about mine, but I'm really good at seeing yours. My experience of you is a projection of my love-hate relationship with my own self. You are my perfect mirror, because we're one. I can almost guarantee you, if I spot it, I got it. I want to encourage you to try this practice. The next time you find yourself uh, discussing a way that someone else has missed the mark, maybe going into just savoring a description of the, the speck that you see in someone else's eye, try finishing your sentence with this, just like me. Consider that, you know? Man, my sister is always disrespecting me and taking my things, just like me. Oh, man, those political candidates, they just, they focus on all these little things and they ignore the issues, just like me. That pastor, he's so arrogant, he thinks he has all the answers, just like me. Try it. Not very much fun, but interesting. We're one. So what? So there's no difference between you and me on many levels. On, on levels, there is no difference between a Seventh-day Adventist in this building and someone outside these walls right now in our neighborhood. I want to tell you the story of a man who looked at himself and his faith community and looked around his neighborhood of Los Angeles and he realized that in so many levels, he, as a white, male, Christian, privileged in some, all the ways that come with that, um, was no different, no better, no worse than the people who were on the streets selling drugs, coming back from jail, joining gangs, trying to survive day by day. And Father Greg Boyle established Homeboy Industries. And Homeboy Industries went to work to put convicts to work. They started with homeboy plumbing, and it turns out that people didn't want ex-cons in their home doing their plumbing. So they switched it up a little bit. Homeboy bakeries, that's a little safer. I'd rather buy a croissant than have them. But it turned into this amazing thing where convicts, gang members, were getting their tattoos removed, going back to work, and living together as one. But what I want you to listen for as you, as you hear from Father Greg, uh, Father G, as the homies call him, is that this, for this guy, it's not about good Christian priest saving these poor lost sheep. It's about mutuality. It's about oneness. It's about kinship. So enjoy this little snippet uh, from Father Greg Boyle about Homeboy Industries. It's sort of a similar thing when you say, wow, I went to the soup kitchen today and I fed all these homeless people. I got more than I gave, you know. But it's deeper than that because it's really about people entering into relationship with each other that is mutually life-giving. Or a reporter asked me once, how's it feel to have saved thousands and thousands of lives? I go, I don't know what you're talking about. I know that my life is saved every day that I'm here. I know that I get rescued every second that I'm in this office. 
Many of these kids have never had an opportunity. They have almost no education. Most of them have some kind of criminal record. And Father Greg has an ability to look at them and see only their potential. Homeboy Industries, for me, was my starting point to a successful future as a man and as a law-abiding citizen. This is a place where an individual can walk through and change his life around and become a productive member of society. You keep these young people out of prison. You give them a salary, which makes them feel good about themselves, which then gives them the means to put money back into the community. It's an investment to, to give to Homeboy Industries. This is helping people who live in your community, who are going to stay in your community and have their own families, giving them a way to get out of the situation that they're in. Gangbangers are more than just gangbangers, they're human beings. And a lot of individuals are born into it, and a lot of individuals are there not because they want to be. What Homeboy Industries did for me, it gave me an opportunity to have a voice. And that's something I didn't have growing up. No one ever took the time to listen. Gang members spend a lot of time stuck in a despair that's pretty bleak. Gang violence is really about the lethal absence of hope. A great many of them are so deeply, hugely traumatized. So if you don't transform your pain, you keep transmitting it. So my mom um, raised me the best that she could. But the best that she could was a lot of violence, a lot of abuse, mental, verbal, and physical. My outlet was the streets. Uh, my outlet was drugs. I ended up living in the back of a trash can on Skid Row. Homeboy stands with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop. There isn't anybody who doesn't belong to this community of kinship. Kinship at Homeboy's for me, that was a big word, kinship. What is kinship? These opposing gang members working hand in hand, you know, baking bread and making coffees in the cafe. You know, different races, different cultures, different beliefs coming into one roof. It's not about, I will heal you and you will receive the gift of my healing. It's about mutuality, that we're, we're all in need of healing. We're all a cry for help. The barriers are broken down among gang members, among the volunteers, among the donors, all those levels. When you see it in them, you can't help but feel transformed yourself. And, and it's brought out a lot of my own vulnerability that I just kind of kept out inside. You, know? you, you feel raw and open around them. All the people who run the place now, those are transformed lives transforming transform lives transforming others it strikes me about this and, and the way that father G uh, responds to these to these people is how he says his life is saved every day that he's there he says I know that I get rescued every second that I'm in this office that it's about mutuality that it's about kinship it's about oneness It's hard to live this out, is it not? My invitation today is just for us to practice looking at the world through those eyes and then see what kind of amazing things happen in our relationship to this, in our relationship to criticism, in our relationship to one another, in our relationship to the people that are not in this building right now. I want us to practice with just a, a one-minute active 
exercise that will help us practice seeing the world through those eyes. And so what I'm gonna ask you guys to do in a second, if you want to, is to stand up um, and we're gonna just rotate like we're going around a clock. We'll spend five seconds at one o'clock, five seconds at two o'clock, three o'clock, and as you rotate, I just invite you to have your eyes and your heart open to whoever you see in front of you and whoever you don't see, whoever God brings to mind for you. And you can pray for those people. You can just be in awe and in delight of who they are and the fact that God has put them there in your life at whatever level you know them or don't know them. And as we go around, see what you experience as you look at the people and, and, and experience the oneness that you have with them. And you know what? When you look east, for example, you might need to go beyond our building. You may need to go into, you know, further up the street. You may need to go all the way to like a, a red state <laughs> to exercise your compassion. Maybe you need to take your mind all the way to the blue states to exercise your compassion and stretch yourself with oneness. Maybe you need to go all the way to the Middle East. Maybe you need to go all the way to the Far East with your imagination to stretch just how big the body of Christ is. But I invite you to that exercise. If you're game, uh, stand with me. And I will tell you, every five seconds or so, we'll rotate to a new number on the clock and just see how God uses this time and space to adjust our vision for the rest of his body. So I just pray, Lord, that in, these mom in this one minute, you will open our hearts and our eyes and the arms of our life to those that you put before our eyes and those that you put on our heart as we look around and see the body of Christ. So starting at 12 o'clock. One o'clock. Two o'clock. Three o'clock. Four o'clock. Five o'clock. Six o'clock. Seven o'clock. Eight o'clock. Nine o'clock. Ten o'clock. Eleven o'clock. Twelve o'clock. Amen. May you feel awe and delight as you look at each other and notice how diverse we are. And may you feel peace and love and kinship as you settle into the reality that whatever else we may be, we are one.